no human being meets you as a sequence of needs. They meet you fully as a human being in every single interaction you have with them, except for one. If you're a parent and your child is starving or dying, there is no other thing. That's all that exists in the world, is fixing your child. Outside of that, every time you meet a human being, they're showing up entirely as all of those layers, all at one time. Yes, do I need healthcare? Yes. Am I still looking for meaning and purpose? Yes. Do I still long for human connection? Yes. Does it matter whether you treat me with respect? Absolutely it matters. I have seen people that most people would say they would not care less about that. They have walked for two weeks through the jungle, carrying their children, fleeing from war. And you would say, surely the only thing they care about is getting food. And I'm telling you, they care about that. They care just as much, though, about how you show up, how you talk to them, how you treat them. All of it matters. Human beings are always all things at one time. Imagine being 19 years old, on the verge of becoming a naval officer, respected, well-off, and with a distinguished career to come, and then deciding to give it all up, everything you had, your money, your possessions, and your time, in the service of those in need. So you take all of your salaries, you put it all into a pool, you paid the rent, you paid for the food, and you had to give up everything you had in that environment. and accept whatever happens. Yep. So there is a freedom that comes with that because within about a month of you being there, everything you own is stolen. So you, you become you know, very free. Yep. You just have the clothes that you have. It just seemed to be just a grand adventure at the time. Daniel Wordsworth is a man who has spent his life on call for the world's most devastating crises. All of those organizations, even then, most people that worked there had multiple languages and they all had master's degrees and they were all from fancy schools. And all I'd done for the last, I don't know how many years, was live with poor people. And the only way I got in was I just said to each one of them, you must have one job that you have that no one else is willing to do in this organization. Yep, you must have one place that's too dangerous, too crazy, too hot, too malaria thing. One place where no one else will go. And I will happily go there. And I will pay my own way. I'll pay my own air ticket. You watch me. And if you like me after six months, you can start paying me. And if you don't, just let me know and I'll leave quietly. Now, almost 35 years later, as CEO of World Vision Australia... Daniel has had to bring that authenticity and purity of purpose to one of the most important executive roles in the country. A challenge in an industry that struggles with the tension between human frailty and human generosity. I mean, the way that the sort of the journey that got me to that house in Pimble in Sydney was um, via my time in the Navy. I joined the Navy. I was HMAS Creswell officer, you know, officer cadet training there. 
And I was on a boat at one stage, and like most young people, I was just trying to sort of sort out, you know, what did I wanted to do in the world and and the, the kind of person I wanted to be. And actually, I read. I was reading a bunch of different books, and um, I actually pulled out the Bible, and I read in the book of Matthew the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that's when Jesus says things like, you know, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy, but also... Uh, if you have two shirts and somebody asks you for one, you give it. And if somebody strikes you on one cheek, you turn to the other. And I read it, and I think um, I just remember thinking that it just—it was just the most beautiful of lives. And I, and it just struck me at that time that I, I I I sort of heard it as a calling that actually I was meant to give my life in service to the poor. And 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 I I got that through reading that. And so I went back when the when the boat came back, and I went back to my naval base. I went to my commanding officer and said, um, "I have to resign. I have to leave." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "You're not going to believe this because I don't really believe this, but God spoke to me and told me I had to go and serve the poor." And he he did look like you know I was sort of crazy, and I felt like it was an unusual thing to say, certainly, but I felt it so strongly that that's what my life was about. And he, um, on the Navy, let me resign. And I walked into town, which is the nearest town was a place called Nara. And I walked into a travel agent and um, I said to the travel agent, I've got all my stuff. I'm ready now to go into all the world. I'm serving the poor. And he said, that's great, you know, but um, we need to narrow that down a little bit. Uh, we're like, if you want to get an air ticket, you're going to have to tell me a place to go. And I said, well, um, I haven't, I haven't really thought of that you know so I just I'm just going out I'm just leaving and he said well you're gonna you know narrow it down pick one place and I said well what was the last place you went to and he said Stockholm in Sweden and I remember at the time thinking that doesn't sound right but you know it's a starting point so he's I said book me to Stockholm in Sweden there aren't many poor people in Stockholm in Sweden even I knew it then and I was just a simple country boy from Tamworth but I knew there are not too many people and then he said um, you got to come back in a year because of the ticket and I said well I'm never coming back he said, well, you can only book a ticket for a year, so you've got to give me like a return, dest- uh, you know, a place that you're going to return from. And that's when I think my brain kicked into gear and I said, um, actually, make it Calcutta in India. Because I knew that that's where there's a lot of poor people. So I thought, Calcutta, that's where I'm going to end up. And that's where you can put the um, flight, but I'm not coming back anyway. And after making that booking, I went up to Sydney, and I, I met some. I, I just, rather than leaving initially, I, I was encouraged that I should start helping the poor where I was, and I started working in Dalmar Children's Home, and I was running. You know, at the age of nineteen, twenty, I was a sort of house father for six children who had been really terribly abused. But but even that didn't strike me as sort of hardcore enough. And so I, I connected to a friend of mine and we said, um, we're going to open up a house and we're going to send out letters. And we did all of this. We're going to send out a letter to all of the sort of prisons, halfway houses, youth crisis centers, drug rehab places, everywhere we thought folks would be there, you know, need somewhere to stay. And we're going to tell them that we've opened this house up and that anyone that they have that they can't take in, anyone that's too wild for them, anyone that they're banning, anyone that they're saying no to, that they can send them to us and no questions asked, we'll take everybody in. 
And actually, what I was following there, this idea of no questions asked, actually came from St. Francis of Assisi, who I, uh, I was reading at the time, a lot of uh, Francis' work, and, I, and that was central to, that, to uh, his sort of philosophy, that you take in and accept everybody, no questions asked. And so we found this big house, and we set up bunk beds in all of the rooms. We sent out those letters, and people started arriving. oblivious, actually, to a lot of things. We were just totally sort of in our world. Uh, I mean, we were youthful in our desire to go to the extreme. And so what we would, what we were all doing, we ended up having like four guys that opened this first house and all four of us had jobs. I was working at a Sydney City Mission Crisis Center, but the other guys had sort of more regular jobs. So you took all of your salaries, you put it all into a pool, you paid the rent, you paid for the food. And then what we said is in everybody's room, there were four bedrooms, we put bunk beds up. So there were four beds in every room. And so the, it wasn't just that you took in, it wasn't just that you were living in a house with poor people or taking them in, but actually you had to be in the same bedroom as them. Yep. And you had to give up everything you had in that environment and accept whatever happens. Yep. So there is a freedom that comes with that because within about a month of you being there, everything you own is stolen. So you, you become you know, very free. Yep. You just have the clothes that you have. And uh, the thing that, that I've carried literally ever since that time and actually is still... A, central to the entire way that I see the world, I learned during that period. And, and of course, this there's a load of funny stories. I mean, the, it was a crazy time and it was a, everything, you know, everything that could go wrong went wrong. Sort of everything that could go right also went right in this kind of miraculous way. And it just felt like this sort of lurching adventure on a daily basis of crisis and... <laughs> All of this stuff. And what ended up happening in the first two years we were there, we ended up opening four houses, and then we had to open a farm, actually. And the reason why we did that was not because there were so many people from the street that wanted to come into our houses, although it was true. The demand that we faced, actually, was young people who wanted to be in the house like me, right? So, in, in a sense, regular folks, regular young people. We had so many young people saying, I want to do this. And so we then had, we opened up a second house with another group of young guys. And then we had a group of young women that were like, why is just the guys doing this? We want to open up a house. So they opened up a house. Then we had a group of married couples that were like, why, why should this be just limited to single people? We did the farm after the fourth house because we had so many young people wanting to do this that we just couldn't keep renting houses in Sydney. So what we did is we rented a farm in Richmond and we would take groups of young people, you know, 12 to 18 young people at a time. We would teach them over three months how to serve and work with the poor. I mean, we're like 20 years old, like, so we're real experts on this. But we would be, we, we were like, we're going to teach you how to serve the poor. Yeah, relative. We were just like, give up everything, immerse yourself, be full of love. Yep. And, uh, and then what we thought we would do is we would look beyond Australia. And so what we started, this was pre-internet too, we started like sort of scouring the world, trying to find characters that were more legendary than us. And so we would try to find, we found like an orphanage in the Ukraine, guys in jungles, people in deserts. And our thing was we need, we want to find people that have lived deeply amongst the poor, 
who have poured out their whole lives in service to the poor, and then we're going to send them a pair of young people to live there six months or 12 months, purely with the goal of actually transforming the young person's life, create, you know, setting them on a sort of pathway to a life of service. And so we would take in these groups, 12 you know, young people, then we would three months later, we'd send them all out all over the world into these locations to live. And then we would also then scour the earth trying to find these sort of legendary characters. So I ended up in Colombia and Hong Kong. I met Mother Teresa during this time. It was all of that kind of stuff. Mother Teresa at that time was alive. This is 1992. And I didn't actually think that I would get to meet her. I just thought, in a sense, she's sacred to me. And so I wanted to be within her vicinity. I, hadn't, I don't even know if I could have explained exactly why that was the case. I suppose, actually, I think what I was thinking was I could never dare meet her. So the best thing I could ever do is be within, you know, 100 meters of where she is. And so I went to Calcutta just to be near her. And so I, I was staying in a hotel, the Fairlawn Hotel, and I hopped in a taxi and said, take me to Mother Teresa. I hadn't even bothered getting the address. You know, I thought they're all going to know where she lives, right? And it turns out totally true. Everybody knows where Mother Teresa lives. So the taxi driver takes me there, and um, we pull up in front. And it did not look like Mother Teresa's house. Like, I thought there'd be like a billboard. He lives Mother Teresa, and there'd be like a whole bunch of stuff and a big sign. And I, you know, this is one of the most famous people in the world, and it's certainly the most famous person living in Calcutta. And yet it was just this sort of cement building. And, I, and the taxi driver pulls up and he points out the door and it was just like a little alleyway. And I said, no, no, Mother Teresa. And he's smiling at me, pointing down the alley. And I'm, I'm like, no. Then I hop out and then I think, oh, and this is a total setup, right? He's like walking me down this alley and I'm going to get mugged. And he kept, you know, shooing me down the alley. And as I walked down there, I, I noticed a little doorway just in the side of the building. It's up like two or three steps. There's just a single door made of wood and I look at it and then hand and there's a little sign next to it and handwritten on the sign it just says Mother Teresa and there's a bit of a chain that comes out of a hole in the door actually you can google Mother Teresa's door actually and it still comes up there's a bit of white like chain coming out the door and I thought this cannot be where Mother Teresa lives this is nothing this is just a, like cement wall and an old door so I thought I'm going to pull on the chain and I'm going to see if this is where she lives. So I pull on the chain and, you know, two minutes later the door opens and there is one of the nuns. They wear a sort of a white uh, thing with the blue stripes on the bottom. And I said, oh, okay, I just, I just have one question. She says, yes. And I said, is this where Mother Teresa lives? She said, yes, this is where the mother lives. Actually, this, I have two questions. So is this where the mother Yes. And then I asked, I, dare, I asked the sort of daring question, like, is she here now? And the, the nun said, yes, she's upstairs right now. And I said, okay, thank you. And I stepped back to the next step down. And I just stood there. And then she said, what on earth are you doing? And I said, I'm just going to stand here for a few hours. I've come all the way from Australia to be near the mother, and she's actually in the building, which is more than I could have dreamed for. So I just, do you mind if I just stand on these steps for a few hours? And then she said, this is very odd. You, what, would you like to just come up and say hello? And I said, what, what do you mean just come up and say hello? 
She goes, well, the mother's just up there. She's She'd be happy to meet you if you've come all this way. I mean, you should come and say hello. So I, up these, I go up the stairs. There was a little um, bench near a door. And the sister says, sit there, and the mother will come out. So I sit there, and about, I just, it was a few minutes later, five minutes later, the door next to me opens up. There's, it's the mother, the mother's bedroom. And there's Mother Teresa standing there. Now she's like half my height, and she's very bent over at that time. And yes, it was a big shock to me. And I, it was for me, it was like I was like meeting Justin Bieber, right? So I'm like overexcited and being too like, I'm sorry, I'm so embarrassed, and I didn't mean to drag you out. I know you're like super busy, and I just wanted to be near you, and I was hardly expecting you to come out and say hello to me. And she was like, you can, you know, calm down now, it's gonna be okay sit down sit down on the bench and she sat down next to me and she just had a chat with me for a little while so um yeah it's a it's a it's a remarkable thing when you meet your heroes and it turns out that they're lovely i think it sort of dawned on her what was going on because i mean she was she, she was elderly uh, I don't mean in any way, it was just like he was this lumbering six foot, you know, two Australian that's just turned up on her doorstep on a certain day and is like, in a sense, um, you know, overexcited. But she it, it, she sort of realized that I just wanted to be in her presence. And she said, actually, that's not the way to be. This is not, you're not doing it right. You know, you're not, this is, if you, she said, I get it, you want, you want to know me, but this is not how you know me. Yeah. And I said, well, how could I know who you were? And she said, well, uh, how long do you have in Calcutta? And I said, well, I have three days here. And she said, well, th there's the color cut hospice where, you know, her fundamental to her ministry is that she um, helps people die with dignity. That's what the mother did. Yep. And so it's essentially a hospice ministry, as Mother Teresa's. And she said, well, why don't you go to the original hospice, the one that she first started called color cut? And uh, she said, spend the three days there. And if you spend three days with these dying men, that's how you will understand me. Yep, that's where you'll find me. And uh, it turned out to be true. Yep, so I spent my three days there, and it was remarkable. And that's, uh, that's where I found what and who she actually was. You learn a different kind of way of turning up. So when I visited that hospice in Calcutta and I talked to the sister, I said, I'm so embarrassed to be here that I know the mother's like foisting me onto you. And she said, just go and hold that man's hand. It was a dying man on a bench. And she said, go and hold his hand. And I said, I don't speak Hindi. And she said, just talk to him, sing songs. I said, I don't speak any Hindi. And she looked at me and she just said, it's okay. He doesn't mind. Yep, he won't mind. Just sing. Yep. And so you spend three days holding somebody's hand as they die, just singing songs to them and speaking to them words that they, you know, that it just, it, it allows you to be more receptive to things. So when I went into those organizations, even my initial stance with it, all of those organizations, even then, most people that worked there had multiple languages and they all had master's degrees and they were all from fancy schools. And all I'd done for the last, I don't know how many years, was live with poor people. And the only way I got in was I just said to each one of them, you must have one job that you have that no one else is willing to do in this organization. Yep, you must have one place that's too dangerous, too crazy, too hot, too malaria thing. One place where no one else will go and I will happily go there. 
and I will pay my own way. I'll pay my own air ticket. You watch me. And if you like me after six months, you can start paying me. And if you don't, just let me know and I'll leave quietly. There was no aggressive stance. So then when I joined those organizations, I was just trying to learn the best way to do this. And just and so, sure, are there, is there bureaucracy? Yes. Is it slower? Yes. Did it turn out to be true, though, that you can utilize many more resources to make a difference? Turned out to be absolutely true. And what I also know is I'm, I think, and this is one of the things I'm most proud of, I'm the same guy. I'm literally, if I met my 19, 20-year-old self that was in that house, we would have, um, we would, it would be a complete meeting of the minds. I'm as idealistic now, probably more idealistic now than I was back then. I'm certainly more hopeful now. I'm certainly more believing in people now than I was back then. Tell me about the people who were able to guide you through the process of taking that humility and that experience that you had and turning that into leadership? I think I was really lucky. Um, the two key bosses that I had in the that next 10 years of my life were both women. I think it was very, very important because they never met my, like I've obviously got a big ego. I still have a big ego. I had a big ego back then. I just wanted to do big things and be all of myself, whatever. I was full of myself. I wasn't in a hard way or in a taking way, but I was just big. Yeah. Often when you show up that way with a man, it becomes very threatening and you get into this sort of hulk. And I think I just was just very sort of, fortunate that I had two women that weren't threatened by me, that they both of them knew they had, they could take me somewhere, teach me something, and that I was willing to listen to them. But they'd never took me on head on. They actually just sort of helped forge me along that way, guide me, give me exactly the right amount of freedom at certain times, because I needed that. I needed the ability to make my mistakes, to have freedom, to like push the edge. And they allowed me all of that with no sense of threat to themselves. And so I think that was key for me, that I could I had very loose hands holding me through the process. It's really interesting that you reflect on, on that sense of ego as well. There's a certain self-righteousness that can come with feeling like you're the one that's doing good and you know how to do good and no one else is doing as much good as, as you're doing. That can be a dangerous path to, to walk down as well. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. And do you think that there were any moments where these people you're referring to, these women you're referring to who are leading you, were, were able to guide you through that? Or was that a self-reflection uh, that you came to that you thought, well, I have to be cautious here because I, I'm at, at risk of going down that path? I certainly was at risk in going down that path. And, and the truth is I went down that path in Hong Kong where, you know, when you're the person in the slum working, you start looking at everybody else like, are you guys even serious? Yeah. Like, I'm pouring my whole life out here. I had, it's like a little miracle that I got given that um, I judged, I was brought to Hong Kong by a church to teach them how to, to serve poor people. And I was trying to teach them. And at the time, I was very judgmental about them. And I was like, why do I need to fight so hard to convince you? Why do I have to convince you that Jesus cares about poor people? Why do I have to convince you that if you have two shirts and somebody asks you for one, you should give it away, right? So we very harsh view. And I was so judgmental about those guys. You know, and I was like, I'm done with this. I'm going back. I'm joining these NGOs. I'm going to go and find and I'm going to do all of this stuff. And I had this view and for 20 years I carried this view 
that I was the saint in that environment and that the rest of them did. And you know what? The other, just about three months ago, I was still carrying that story, yep, that I was the noble one, the good one, and they weren't. And I was just serving the web, and I don't even know how it happened, but I actually I found that ministry. And what I discovered was that not I left, that church kept that ministry going, and it's 20 years later, and they are still in that slum community every single day providing health care and education, and they've kept it going for decades without me. I was completely and utterly wrong in every single way in relation to those people. It's, a, it's like it's a, it was a lovely symmetry moment to just remind me of that. And I think it was a particular gift to give me when I'm joining an organization like World Vision. The temptation there is that you think you're on top of the world and that you're some kind of person. And then you just get reminded like, no, it's, you know, be careful. NGOs absolutely have not found their way. You'll, you know, you'll find some of the most arrogant, technocratic, domineering groups of people in the NGO space, as in medicine, profoundly well-intentioned, actually, and producing remarkable results on a daily basis. And yet they're just things like humility, things like gentleness, things like kindness, things like being present, things like those sort of things are undervalued alongside of harder ideas around technical competence. But actually engaging with human, when you engage and meet to, with a human being, I, I think we, we, and I think part of what informs this, right, is this concept we have about Maslow's pyramid, right? So we're like, no, you know, the, like human beings got these layered things that when you meet them, like say in my world where you're meeting people that are literally, you know, at the end and they're hungry and they need shelter, and they need healthcare immediately. You have this view that I'm going to get in there quickly. I'm on the lower end of the Maslow chart. I just need to provide them with, um, you know, the basics to survive. And then over time, I can then progress them into safety and security. And then over time, I can progress them into connection with other people. And then I can progress them over time then into meaning and purpose. And you sort of move up this Maslow chart. I now know, after more than two decades of working in this, that that understanding of Maslow is absolutely wrong. That no human being meets you as a sequence of needs. They meet you fully as a human being in every single interaction you have with them, except for one. If you're a parent and your child is starving or dying, there is no other thing. That's all that exists in the world, is fixing your child. Outside of that, every time you meet a human being, they're showing up entirely as all of those layers, all at one time. Yes, do I need healthcare? Yes. Am I still looking for meaning and purpose? Yes. Do I still long for human connection? Yes. Does it matter whether you treat me with respect? Absolutely it matters. I have seen people that most people would say they would not care less about that. They have walked for two weeks through the jungle carrying their children fleeing from war. And you would say, surely the only thing they care about is getting food. And I'm telling you, they care about that. They care just as much, though, about how you show up, how you talk to them, how you treat them. All of it matters. Human beings are always all things at one time. A 
imagine if the statue of David could talk, right? And then you put the statue of David in a cupboard somewhere. The statue of David would say, do you know who I am? Right? It's like every human being, it's the most beautiful thing about us. We are aware of our wondrousness, even if we can't articulate it. We are so acutely aware of it that we are worthy of something so enormous and that we, I think, are so deeply disappointed in ourselves and in the world and how we're... And, and so we, it, it's more... So each of those engagements is an insult to our dignity and that really hurts us. Yeah, we can put up with a lot of pain and anguish, but an insult to our wondrousness we can't put up with. I want to talk for a little bit about dealing with futility. There's a not uncommon scenario in the hospital where you are faced with the reality that somebody is going to die and there isn't something that you can do about it. In fact, by doing things, in some cases, you can actually make their suffering worse. And finding the path forward and giving people both an understanding of their circumstance such that they can make a decision, but also giving them hope is an extraordinarily confronting thing to have to deal with when you're ingrained and wired to want to fix people and to help them. I imagine in your work, though I have never worked with a non-profit organization in a vulnerable community, that you are constantly faced by things that you can't do, that people that you won't be able to help. And I'm interested in how you sustain yourself and your people when, when that is something that you come across so regularly. Yeah, I think you're alluding to the truth of that, which is that actually that's hardest on you, not the person that you're actually looking after. Right? They can, when met with dignity, when met with honesty, when met with um, the truth, they can handle those things and they have to actually, they have to bear that. It's harder for the carer, right, whose job is to fix that stuff, like you said. It's like, and, and then this stuff, what I, I do believe what can happen is the experience of seeing others suffer. And I'm, I, I'm guessing it's like this with pain, but you're the doc, you could tell me. But the danger of it is you become like a sponge, that if you let it come in, over time it accumulates to the point where the sponge is soaked and you can't bear any more. And so then very small amounts of, it's like your soup, you're soaked. And so the next drop can't be taken anymore. Yeah. And so early in my career, I had to grapple with this idea of how do you, how do you live in this space? Yeah. What I do is that I adopt a very conscious stance around the stories that I tell myself. Yeah. So... To me, I have this feeling that it's your thoughts that lead to your feelings and it's your feelings that lead to your actions and your behaviors. One of the things that I see doctors, nurses, healthcare workers struggle with is depersonalization in the face of trauma. And when you're constantly faced with horrendous things, it's very easy to switch off your emotion or connection to that in order to keep performing your job and your function. And in some ways, that is a powerful mechanism of continuing to do good work. 
to, to switch yourself off to the pain and to be able to continue to function. But it exacerbates the problem that we were talking about before, which is that in some cases, and in most cases, what people need is, is not your technical proficiency, it's your humanity. And so the sacrifice is not necessarily a sustainable one, nor is it necessarily a beneficial one to either you or the people around you, but it can be the natural inclination. And so when you're dealing with a child that gets run over by a car and dies in the emergency department, or a baby who's had a bowel leak and whose body is, is slowly eroding from the inside and you can't do anything about it and you have to go every day to their bedside and see their parents and talk to them about what the path forward is until there is no path forward and then talk to them about that. How do you keep doing that for 50 years or for 30 years and yet still retain that sense of that wondrous human being, that dignity, that, that empathy, and I love that concept of trying to control your narrative judiciously and in a disciplined way. But do you think that there are any other techniques that people can use to fight that inclination towards switching off from those around us? That has a use-by date, right? So if, if you adopt that approach of hardening yourself in the face of suffering, it does do what you said. It, it deteriorates the, the way your interactions, your human interactions, they, they decline. But actually, you have a use-by date. You end up running a restaurant somewhere, right? So 10 years in, you go and want to work in a winery or, you know, travel the world. You, you can't keep going like that. And, I, and I, don't, I, want to, I want to sort of, in a sense, really double down on this. This, this story about, I believe, and I, I haven't found a better way to say this yet, but I've noticed this in my career that you, you you can push through suffering into a new place. So most people think that the world is abundant on the surface but fundamentally scarce underneath. Yep. But actually in my experience it's the opposite of that. That the world appears to be scarce but actually if you push through that you find abundance. That actually there's much more good in the world. I don't say this in a glib way at all. In the last 20 years, if you name a dreadful thing that's happened around the world, I've been there or had teams in those places. Yep, I've been inside of Somalia, inside of Congo, in Darfur. I've been in East Timor. I've been in Afghanistan. I've been in refugee camps. I've been in feeding centers. I've been in Ebola treatment units. All of these things. So when I talk about the, the, the narrative, what the narrative does is it actually changes. It's like... Like when you seek to create a positive story, you're not just bolster. You're not just in the corner going, right? We're going into this. this is going to be terrible. So just let's be upbeat. Let's just all be positive. What you're doing is you're you're transforming your thoughts to find what's good. And actually, what ends up happening is you suddenly see it everywhere around you. Yep. It's like you have you take one set of glasses which wants to see the world in a pessimistic, dark way. You take it off. You put on one that says, no, I'm going to see the world. Because this is a key point. This is how the world is. And then you say, what do you mean? It's either bad or it's really good. It just depends on what glasses you're wearing. It's really and truly, I can say this, I'm, I know this to be true. If you believe the world is bad, it becomes it. If you think it's scarce, it becomes it. If you think it's nothing but suffering, pain and anguish and you're powerless in the face of that, if you believe that, it be absolutely becomes it, and you can have evidence to support your arguments. If you think, though, that the world has potential for magic and being remarkable, that actually it has abundance, that actually there's always a way, 
And if you believe that people will live up to that they're better than you think and that they're looking for an excuse to be good, if you look for it, it's suddenly, it be, the world just becomes that. I've watched it happen. When we realized that refugees have plenty of ideas and that could actually bring about change, we got 1.4 million ideas from refugees. And the best idea, when we hit the 1 million idea point, you know, we were asking refugees like, well, you're like experts at being refugees. They're like, yeah, we're total experts at being refugees. We know more about being a refugee than you do. And then we're like, so you've probably got like ideas on how to change the situation. Yes, we've got ideas. Why are you showing up now and asking us now? I've been in this camp for 10 years. A million ideas later, I sat there and I did an analysis to find out who had the one in a million idea. And it was a seven-year-old boy in one of the world's most forgotten refugee camps. It started in 1958. It's a 60-year-old refugee camp. And what was amazing about that was we didn't ask him. We were asking all the adults for their ideas. He came up and said, you're asking all the adults for their ideas. I have an idea. And then we're like, great. What's your idea? And then he tells us his idea. And we're all like, I think you just won the best award idea. Like you just, you just totally nailed it. Daniel, people will never forgive me if I don't ask you now what that idea was from the seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. So you in this camp, there's 100,000 people in this camp, 25,000 that are actually school-age kids. And this seven-year-old says, you open the water point every morning, because in refugee camps, you don't have water in your house, right? You've got to walk to a tap, and then everybody lines up for an hour or two, and they get their water, and they go back home, and they do it in the morning and at nighttime. And he says, you open the water point, the tap, every morning at 7.30. We all come down here, we all line up. By the time my mother gets back with the water, or I get back with the water, it's already time for school to start. And so we don't ever get any breakfast. So by the time the water comes home, it's too late to make the porridge. I've already left for breakfast. He said, if you would only open the water point one hour earlier at 6.30, we can collect the water, come home, make our porridge, we can all have breakfast, then we can go to school, and we're not hungry all the time. Now, he was one, all of us looking at one another. How old's this refugee camp? 60 years old. How many people have gone through it? Hundreds of thousands. The president of Rwanda went in, was in this camp. Yep. And then we're like, you mean to say... For like 60 years, we've just been opening the water point one hour too late. And so tens of thousands of children have been going to school with no breakfast. Turns out, absolutely true. One, And so then we just said, okay, let's just open the water point an hour earlier. It didn't cost anyone nothing. And suddenly all these kids are getting breakfast every day. We're like, this kid's a genius. How dumb are we? <laughs> There's a huge part of that which that externally looking, giving, leading to the betterment of yourself or, or the sense of worth, that external focus is one thing. But I'm also very interested in how you then start to approach that as a father with a family and when you're trying to raise children. And, and now suddenly it's not just about what I am doing for the world, but it's about what my example is telling my kids and the lessons I'm trying to impart and, and how I'm raising them in an environment which is in some ways very foreign to the one in which I was forged. 
Like when, when you came into yourself, you were able to shed away a lot of what had come before in, in a sense. And yet now you're, you're raising a family in a world in which they're not able to do that or maybe you're not able to do that, that for them. And I'm interested in, in how you impart those lessons get very nervous about answering these things because, um, you know, parenting's so hard and it's so... Um, and when you have a child, you're so aware of what they're born with, right? You know, the nature and nurture. You're like, I, I was blessed in my life to just have, in my view, the most beautiful daughter that I could have had and that she's been nothing but joy from the moment she came out of the womb in a very real way, actually. I it's like it was a gift to me that she was like that. And so I'm very nervous to give advice because I'm like, no, I, I was lucky one because I got like the best daughter. Yeah. And so it was not, I don't know, because I can't speak to, because it's not always like that. I know that. It's not always like that. But what I would say, what I've, on this issue of how do you bring up a child to show up like the way that I'm talking about and to live with these ideas, I, my view is this that in this way, Children are thermometers. Yep. They're thermometers. They're just telling you exactly who you are. So if if you they and they gather, they're a thermometer that reads ambient temperature. So they're reading everything. What you say, what you do, how you treat waiters, how you treat dogs, how you treat your your spouse, how you treat them, how you see the world, what your narrative. They're just like a little supercomputer, like a little like supercomputer thermometer, they're just reading all of that for 18 years. And then at the end of that, they just go, and here's who I am. Yeah. And if, if somehow you manage to live a life where as much as possible you authentically connected all of that stuff to being a good person, I think they see it. I know they do, actually, because they just read it. And so I never worried about the bits and pieces so much. You know, I'd never sat my daughter down, right, here are the five principles to life, or here are the, right, I just never did any of those things. Yeah, I just, I just be me, and just let her be her, and just loved her. There's, there's an incredible power to that, that trust and faith in humanity. And I feel so privileged to have the chance to dive deeply into that with you um, and to, to, through your experiences in your life so far, investigate the truth of that. Because it's so often that we can tell ourselves these things, but it means something different when it comes from somebody who's actually lived through the worst that we have to experience on this planet and can still come back to us and say, this is fundamentally true. And I still believe this after all these years. And here's the proof of what I'm saying. And I, I hope that people who are listening get a sense of the power of that just like I have this evening and have enjoyed being the beneficiaries uh, of your path uh, in, in perhaps gaining some of that wisdom that they, they may have forgotten in themselves. Um, so thank you, Daniel, so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to get involved with the show, follow us on Instagram by searching The Risk Equation Podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll be offering followers the chance to ask questions of our guests, 
So be sure to follow us over there to get involved and have your question featured on the show.